0: Hi, I'm Colonel Rob Masaitis, Commander of the 27th Special Operations Wing at Cannon Air Force Base, New Mexico. At Cannon, we have the unique ability to employ specialized air power any place, anytime, anywhere. We are honored to be part of the 2019 Great American Defense Community.
1: Hi, I'm Mike Morris, Mayor of Clovis, New Mexico, home to Cannon Air Force Base and a 2019 Great
0: American Defense Community. Thanks for tuning in today. This is ABC Live.
2: Good afternoon, everybody. And as always, big shout out to our friends in New Mexico. Now. We've got here today one of our newest additions to the ADC Board of Directors, though he's certainly not new to our world. He and I actually started our involvement with ADC about 10 years ago. Makes me feel old. Prior to that, he was the installation commander in charge of Eglin Air Force Base. He didn't move far after his retirement, though, and is now the city councilman for Niceville, Florida, right outside the gate. His day job is as CEO of Matrix Design Group, a company whose history of engagement with ADC spans over 20 years. How's it going, sir?
1: Things are great. You got in okay last night? I did. I got here. I had enough time to get down to the mall and go for a short run. We'll call it a run. you <laughs> still yeah. running, huh? Uh, I'm not running the way I used to. Yeah. I mean, uh not too long ago. I did my last Marine Corps marathon here, and uh, I thought I was moving along really well. And then a lady passed me who had uh, just given birth about three or four weeks prior to the uh, Marine Corps marathon. And you're probably wondering, how did I know she just gave birth? Because she was pushing her baby, who was four weeks old, in the carriage, and she passed me. I never saw her again. I'm not going to lie. That's kind of (laughs) pathetic. Better than you could tell.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You've got jokes. All right. Well, hey, we got a busy show for you today. We're going to be talking about a lot of different subjects. We got military child education. We've got an interview with Vice Admiral Lindsay. Another one with Lieutenant General Gabram. And we've got all of the Armed Forces Insurance Military Spouse of the Year. So let's dive into it uh, and start with Tim out on the West Coast, reading today's headline.
0: It's Thursday, May 6th, and here are your headlines powered by On Base. The pace of nominations to fill out the ranks of the Pentagon is because Beginning to pick up its pace. Two important nominations of note for our members. A familiar face in defense circles, Frank Kendall, has been nominated to be the Secretary of the Air Force. Kendall is best known as the Pentagon's top acquisition official during the Obama administration from 2012 to 2016. He is a West Point graduate and served in various DOD-related roles in uniform civil service and in the private sector over the last three decades. He's likely to bring a significant focus on acquisitions to his new Air Force job, if confirmed. Much closer to our world, the White House also announced the nomination of Merith- Meredith Berger as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy Installations and Environment. This is the first of the three service installation positions to be announced. Berger is a familiar name to ADC and was involved with us during her time as a senior advisor to the Mabus Group, a strategic advisory form f- firm run by former Navy Secretary Ray Mavis. Berger also happened to serve as Secretary Mabus's deputy chief of staff. In recent years, she's been connected to the Belford Center at Harvard, a think tank run by Secretary of, former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter. Berger is currently a senior manager at Microsoft working on the Defending Democracy project that aims to protect campaigns from hacking and promote online transparency. Secretary Austin has been on a whirlwind of travel since taking the job, but not necessarily doing a lot of big policy speeches. So getting a sense of his thinking on big issues like the upcoming national defense strategy means you really have to listen between the lines. And one of those opportunities happened last week while he was visiting Hawaii for the change of command ceremony of the Indo-Pacific Command. While very short, his introductory comments did give us some important insight into his big picture thinking about the role of DOD. Let's take a listen.
3: Today's changes are going to demand a lot of new thinking and a lot of new action from all of us. You know, I'm a civilian now, but i spent most of the past two decades executing the last of the old wars. And I will never forget the valor that I saw and the lessons that I learned as a commander in Iraq and CENTCOM. But the way that we fight the next major war is going to look very different from the way that we fought the last one. And we all need to drive toward a new vision of what it means to defend our nation. In this young century, we need to understand faster, decide faster, and act faster.
0: One of the brewing issues facing the defense secretary right now is whether to require vaccinations for the troops. With voluntary acceptance rate rate of the COVID-19 vaccine surprisingly low, President Biden was asked about making the vaccines mandatory during a recent interview. And he said he has not ruled out requiring that all troops receive the COVID-19 vaccine. Later in the day after this interview, the White House did confirm that it's something they're looking at. Though most members of the military are required to receive a series of vaccines and other shots as part of their service, DOD is not mandating they receive the coronavirus vaccine because it is currently under emergency authorization by the Food and Drug Administration. None of the three vaccine makers have applied to license their vaccine formally, but that could happen as early as next month. So for now, service members must give their informed consent to receive a vaccine, which they are also allowed to withhold. The law states the president may override this policy based on the interests of national security. The last time that happened involved the anthrax vaccine in the early 2000s. So the big question now is, does the president override this policy for national security reasons, Nat? Or does he wait for the vaccine to travel through the regulatory hoops? And what does that mean in the meantime? Lots of interesting questions, especially for defense communities are hoping to return to some semblance of normalcy. Starting this week, more than a half million of Department of Defense and Coast Guard civilians will be able to shop in military exchanges in the US. This expansion does not include retired DOD or Coast Guard civilians, but that group will get online only exchange shopping by mid October of this year. While this change will lead up to an estimated increase of 48 million to MWR funds, it could also change shopping patterns in defense communities and, and to impact local businesses. With so much happening in DC this week, we wanted to check in with a few stories that may not have been on your radar this past week. Last week, the Pentagon announced it's canceling the construction of parts of the former President Donald Trump's border wall with Mexico that were being built using military funds, with the unused money being returned to the military. It's not immediately clear how much would be returned to DOD, but is likely to be several billion dollars. In 2019 alone, the military said more than 120 U.S. military construction projects were adversely impacted by President Trump's move. During last Congress, more than 16,000 bills were introduced, and so many of these ideas never really went beyond the press release. That said, it's always interesting to see what ideas are brewing in Congress because you get a sense of maybe what might become a future law. Two bills caught our eye this week that we wanted to share. A group of lawmakers recently introduced a measure designed to prevent adversaries from acquiring land near military bases, which they, they use to finance regimes and place military installations at risk. Senators Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Representative Ronnie Jackson, Tony Gonzalez, Pat Fallon, all introduced the Protecting Military Installation and Ranges Act of 2021, which restricts efforts by Russia, China, Iran, or North Korea to buy U.S. land within 100 miles of a military installation or 50 miles from military areas. The group says that legislation would address this national security threat by expanding go- government oversight and security around military. Military installations. Definitely raises some interesting questions for defense communities too. We know food insecurity has been a major issue for military families during the pandemic, and a new bill introduced last week tries to change that. Because of the way the Department of Agriculture calculates eligibility for federal benefits, many military families are locked out of receiving assistance. The Military Hunger Prevention Act, reintroduced last Thursday by Senators Tammy Duckworth of Illinois and Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, will create a workaround for military families who currently don't qualify for assistance because of federal government counts the basic allowance for housing as income. Similar bills have been introduced in past years. and It's uncertain how this bill will move forward. We will have to wait a bit longer for the Senate to do their work on the annual defense authorization bill. The full committee markup of the massive bill will be waiting until at least July because of the uncertainty of the timing of the president's full budget submission. If you remember, the skinny budget was released last month but the committee chairs have made an urgent request that the White House submit their full budget request by May 10th, or it will be difficult to get everything passed by the start of the fiscal year in October. In the meantime, the Senate Armed Services Committee is, will be spending their summer working on nominations. They currently have 23 DOD nominations to consider. Despite these delays, the annual posture hearings for the services have started on the House side, though they're still in this virtual format. House lawmakers have scheduled a robust series of online hearings, including public testimony from leaders of all five services, leaders of the National Guard and service reserves, who will all be testifying on their budget needs for fiscal 22 and beyond. Check on base for the schedule and readout from this week's hearings. And we'll keep you up to date as the busy time in DC continues. That's a look at your headlines. Now back to the studio in DC.
2: Welcome back, Tim. Great as always. Uh, I wanted to introduce our next guest, Dr. Jared Wheeler. He's actually the very first superintendent elected to the ADC Board of Directors, which I think demonstrates the growing importance of education to both DOD and our communities. How's it going, sir?
4: Going great, guys. Glad to be here. Uh, Matt, Sal, thanks for taking time to have me on the show today, and it's great to be here to uh, represent Whiteman Air Force Base and Knob Noster back in Missouri, home of the B-2 air (laughs) power.
1: Great to see. I can tell by your lapel pin that you're proud. Absolutely. Uh, one of his first orders of business was to establish an ADC education task force. Uh, Jared, can you talk a little bit about this? What does that mean? What's the components of that? What do you hope to accomplish?
4: Yeah, absolutely. The uh, you know, the real goal here is uh, I just have reflected back on my time interfacing with ADC over the last three to four years and just learning about the organization, what, what we're about, and uh, really the bandwidth of what we can do. And when I looked across ADC, I saw engagement from all sectors of the community, um, whether it's energy resilience, uh, you know, manpower workforce, so many things that are engaged right here in ADC. But what I noticed is there was an absence, there was a a, a missing link, and that is in the education sector. I know through most of those events, I was noticing that I was one of the few educators who were attending, and uh, I saw an opportunity there to uh, to really uh, approach ADC about uh, potentially doing something about that. So uh, with this task force, we absolutely want to engage the education sector into the organization uh, as a vital part of what's going on within the community. We know right now that public education is a top tier priority for all branches of service. And there's no better place to really influence and uh, come together, build partnerships and leverage resources uh, to support the military child um, quality of life for our airmen, uh, for our service members uh, than right here in ADC. So that's the goal of the task force. And I look forward to working with, with all members of ADC to really move the ball down the court in this area.
2: That's great. All right. Well, we certainly know that public education has become a big issue for DOD just this summer the Air Force released their scorecard, yeah. which racks and stacks communities based on the quality of their education. Right. I, I think your community did pretty well. You want to tell us about this scorecard?
4: Absolutely. We, uh, you know, it's all about the leadership, right? Yeah. Uh, we uh, That's thats a joke trying to keep up with you guys on your intro <laughs> today, but uh, leadership matters, but more important than leadership, it's, it's the partnership. And for us, it was all about timing. I know that uh, had that scorecard come through five years ago, our results at at Whiteman and at Knob Nostra would have been very, very different. Uh, Come forward five years because of the relationship uh, with our wing commander, with our our community, uh, with with organizations like Mesa, NAFIS, ADC, and uh, most importantly, DODIA and all of their support, we were able to make so many changes and really build out a a good performing school into a great performing school. And that resulted with uh, Whiteman Air Force Base coming out as number one out of all 154 installations across the country on quality of education. So we're excited uh, about that. Uh, we know our work isn't done. We will keep building on that. But we also have a story to share about all of the players that helped that result occur for our students and for our families. So uh, with this task force, we will look, look forward to engaging in that conversation across all branches, bringing folks together and uh, really putting our kids up on a pedestal.
2: And really, I think this is great timing. As most of us know, in the FY21 NDAA, uh, it directed all the other services to put something together just like that. Yeah, and that just shows
4: that, uh, um, like all other facets of our world, accountability matters, and uh, what gets measured gets done. And um, we know that if we uh, if we don't offer a high quality education, our service members will, will vote with their feet and, and leave. So we want to make sure, I know in Knob in, in Noster and at Whiteman, one thing that we always talk about is when our airmen are out taking care of our nation's business, the last thing we want in the back of their mind is whether or not their kids are getting a great quality of education at home and being cared for. And right now we, uh, we're doing a great job and we're only going to get better.
1: Well done, sir. Well, I know you joked about it's all about leadership, but it is all about leadership. And just out of curiosity, how long have you been superintendent?
4: So this is year six for me. Year six. And, and you uh, said if
1: we went back five years, this would not have occurred. So I think you might have had something to do with this. I,
4: I, you know, um, I was just lucky to be a part of it. We've had great wing commanders. I'm wrapping up uh, my, my third uh, relationship with my third wing commander. Right. Uh, at least the formal wrap up. I'm actually heading out to retirement to see a former one this weekend. And all three have been amazing. We we really got together early on and when I was hired, had some, uh, some, some uh, very, direct conversations and also that commitment to to outreach and partnerships so we locked arms and We've been lockstep ever since. That's
1: great. Very cool. Let me let me uh let me kind of ask you to crystal ball a little bit as you kind of look at what's happening with uh, vaccinations and things of that Mm -hmm. nature in the country is opening up. Where do you see schools this fall? I think it's a really important uh, thing that a lot of folks are thinking about.
4: Yep, it's absolutely a a great example of what a the one community concept here in ADC looks like. Um, In in our uh, example in Nobnoster, we had built out the opportunity to use a, a virtual deployment of learning prior to COVID. We built it out for other reasons through partnerships with DoDEA and uh, some other private partners and service providers. And when that hit, we were able to flip our switch and deploy over the the span of about three to five days for 100% of our students virtual. Fast forward to August, we had 85% of our parents choose to come back in person for learning. When we enrolled for the second semester, that number jumped up to 93%. So with the safeguards in place, uh, we were able to effectively have 93% of our students in seats with the other 7% in virtual, and it would never have happened without the relationship of the entire community working with public health, working with base leadership, working with our, our county government and our community to make that happen. And I can't say enough thanks to our parents and and leadership out at the base for for what's going on. Moving forward for next fall, I think we are a good example of a good example that we can't have a sense of normalcy, and we, you know, things happen quickly. So we're watching that, but uh, just uh, lock arms and work together. That's the key. If we're working against each other, that's where the conflict rises, and that only exacerbates the problem.
1: One community, like you said earlier. Absolutely. uh, Perfect.
2: You bet. Well, sir, thank you so much for being here. I look forward to working with you. Likewise, congratulations on your new appointment. Likewise. uh,
4: Look forward to our work together. Thanks.
2: We're gonna go ahead and take a short break and hear from our partners over at Train. We'll be back.
5: Inside your building, there's an atmosphere, an indoor environment where elements like air quality, thermal comfort, acoustics, and lighting interact to influence our physical and emotional well-being when we're inside. Wellsphere from Train helps building owners optimize indoor spaces for the wellness of the people they serve. By understanding the unique needs of your building, we can help you make the right improvements to increase its marketability.
1: Welcome back. Vice Admiral Lindsay is the commander, Naval Installations Command, and hails from Phoenix, Arizona. He's a graduate of the University of California at Berkeley and holds master's degrees from the Marine Corps University and the University of San Diego. In his nearly 35 years of distinguished service, the Admiral has had numerous sea duty assignments with three deployments to Antarctica and three deployments to the Arabian Gulf. Ashore, Admiral Lindsey served in numerous impressive staff positions, including time with U.S. Pacific Fleet, U.S. European Command, and right here in D.C. with the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy Installations and Environment and as the Commandant of the Naval District of Washington. He began serving as a seventh commander of Naval Installations Command about a year ago, uh, May of 2020. Sir, thank you so much for being here and joining us today.
3: Thanks, Sal. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's fantastic.
1: Uh, so I'm going to start you uh, off uh, right out of the gates with um, climate change, climate change, resiliency, extreme weather, things of that nature. We're hearing a lot of it. the administration thinks it's important. Uh, I think a lot of our communities think it's important. Um, what can you share with us in terms of uh, from your seat, from your perspective, and specifically how it relates to our uh, defense communities that support these installations?
3: Yeah, thanks, Sal. It, it has been important and it continues to be important, okay? Uh, our installations have to be resilient. They have to continue to operate and function and support their missions, uh, regardless of what climate's doing, regardless of uh, disasters, natural or others that come our way. That's a key part of what we do at Navy Installation Command is working with our subordinate commands to make sure that they can uh, they can resist, take a licking, and keep on ticking, so to speak. All
2: right. Good. Yes, sir. You know... Can't have any conversation without talking about COVID, unfortunately. Uh, We know that the Navy just put out a memo which stated that they're going to do telework. uh, Up to 50% of of personnel uh, only can visit a facility, and that's all dependent upon vaccination rates and COVID infection rates in the community outside the gate. Uh, What's this going to do to the Navy? How are you approaching this?
3: Well, Matt, actually, I'm approaching it as a tremendous opportunity when you think about it. Uh, you know, COVID, the, the pandemic had brought a change on onto us. We didn't have, it's change we didn't have to initiate, which is a lot easier for leaders, right? When change is forced upon you. But the key for leadership is to leverage that change for your benefit and for the benefit of your team and your mission. And so what we've done is we've looked across, and, and we've been, the majority of our staff's been teleworking for the last year, essentially. And we found uh, many areas uh, we are actually more productive and are better execute our mission from a teleworked remote work perspective than we are when we require employees to come in and sit in a building, in an office and do their work. And so uh, we feel like we're even more effective in many areas. That's not true for all, but many areas. So we're working to leverage that. To become a more remote and teleworked workforce at Navy Installations Command, and we think uh, our estimates are 60, 65 percent of our staff may never have to step foot in a, in a Navy building again. And think of think of the benefit to that. First of all, employees in where I where I work now in Washington D.C. are more expensive than they are in other parts of the country. So I can probably drive down my staff costs. Oh, by the way, I don't have to have the same facilities on the base to support them if they're distributed and remote. And then think of the talent pool that's open to you now, because heretofore, if I hire someone on staff, they have to be willing to come to Washington DC and work. But now, think of the talent pool that's open to me. If I say, oh, I don't, you, can, you can work in Montana, you can work in Illinois and still do your job. And so lower costs, wider talent pool. So I think there's tremendous benefit, and we are looking to leverage that.
2: Well, as someone from Montana, I I encourage you to go work there. Okay. (laughs) I'd love
3: to. You know,
2: kind of following up on that, that second piece of that is what really stuck in my mind, that this is really because of what's happening outside the gate. Mm-hmm. If they're not getting their shots, if they're not uh, doing what they need to do, it's impacting the mission
3: here. Base, are, are you concerned with that as well? I, I am, and I'm not. I I, I trust um, I trust our employees. And, and their devotion and willingness to do what it, they need to do to protect themselves and their families so that they can execute the mission, because they understand the importance of the mission. Um, their loyalty and ded- dedication is unquestioned. And so, you know, uh, yeah, what happens outside the fence line, obviously we care about, we're worried about, um, those are our friends, our, our, you know, our fellow Americans. But for the most part, the Navy's done really well. If you look at our infle- inf- uh, infection rates, if you look at what we've been able to do as a force. We've continued to operate. We've continued to deploy and do our mission, even in the face of this pandemic, with really low infection rates. And that's a that's a tribute to our men and women in uniform, our civilians, but also our contractors.
1: So, sir, I'm going to toss a tough one at you now. So I heard everything you just said about uh, teleworking remote, reducing footprint. I'm going to bring that back to basing. Mm-hmm. So, um, there, uh, challenges galore out there. You know, NDAA, you, you see something in draft, it comes out something different later. Year after year, they change. We've got escalating, uh, deficits and debt. Things are going to have to be looked at. Mm-hmm. What, what's the big picture from basing, uh, from, from where, again, from where you sit?
3: From from my perspective, is to stay flexible and agile, okay? <laughs> as you can imagine, because you never, I mean, you think you have an idea and you probably have a pretty good idea of what your budget's going to look like, you know, what you're going to have and not have to do your mission. But it's incumbent on us as public servants to, to maintain that flexibility, to execute the mission, um, and to make best use of the taxpayer dollars. And so that's really our focus. I, you know, I can't read crystal balls. And I can tell you, I... I don't sit around and wonder if the goose is going to lay a golden egg every year, right? I just go, hey, I I got to do what I'm asked to do with what I'm given, right? And I trust the process. I trust Congress. I trust the Department of Defense to give me what I need. Maybe not what I want, (laughs) but to give me what I need to execute the mission. And so far, so good. I mean, yeah, we have some warts and some things that, you know, maybe not exactly the way we'd want them. But by and large, I think we do a pretty good job. You know, your trust comment makes me laugh because I've got a group
1: of guys that uh, we all serve together and we always say, trust the spreadsheet, yeah. you know, trust the spreadsheet. Yeah. Trust will the work spreadsheet.
2: Out. Well, sir, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming in. Uh, I hope we can see you out in San Antonio for our Installation Innovation Forum this November. Uh, your counterpart, Lieutenant General Gabram, is going to host mm-hmm. us. Uh, and in fact, we're going to talk to him right now.
3: Oh, fantastic. So I Thank would lo- you, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm an ADC fan, so thanks for the opportunity. Anytime. I'd love to come chat with you. You guys are force multiple. Player, So thank you.
1: Thank you, Admiral. Thank
3: you.
2: We did have a chance to sit down with Lieutenant General D- uh, Douglas Gabram this week. He's Commanding General of U.S. Army Installation Management Command. His role has taken on a new importance, just as the Admirals, as installations have grappled with pandemic response, climate change, and extreme weather, and ensuring housing challenges re- are resolved force-wide. Let's head there now to hear what he has to say about these. So, just jumping right in, you know, uh, income and installations have gone through a lot this year, from COVID to extreme weather. Uh, housing, I know, is still a priority. So, so maybe we can even start there. Uh, can you give us an update on the latest efforts to improve housing? Uh, I know there's some new projects coming down the pipeline. Um, so maybe you can talk us a little through that.
6: Yeah. So on, on the housing front, now um, we, you know, since it's been a year and a half since the quote, you know, housing crisis, and, and I got to tell you, um, the, it's way different now in terms of increased responsibility is at the four-star level where it kind of wasn't before. Um, so general Daly, is the army material commander, um, is in charge of housing and delegated as the execution arm to installation management command. Um, so there's multiple efforts with, inside that. Um, one as you can imagine we've increased the oversight all the way from the garrison commander up to my level. Um, we, we have the um, portfolio asset management handbook, mildly interesting, to you probably, but what it does, it lays out all um, the standards in terms of, in terms of management, in terms of financial, in terms of quality control, satisfaction survey. So we're standardized now across the board, Um, really powerful. Um, We've also implemented, um, no pun intended, the housing implementation plan. Um, And we, we mean our, meaning our, our RCI partners, not army money, but has gone out and had, have a cured increased capital. So I was just at Fort Hood last Thursday, and we had a great event where Lend Lease unveiled the $1.1 billion. Uh, that they are going to pump into their projects and Fort Hood will get over a half a billion dollars um, over the next five plus years. Extremely happy about that. We haven't put money into Fort Hood since 2018. So you asked me what's changed. Um, That's changed significantly. Um, We we now uh, have relationships, collaboration where we understand um, financials much better, so we make better decisions in terms of out year development and then um, future years, ten years and past. So yeah, I, I could uh, I could stop there. You 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 probably heard of the bill of rights, the NDA um, bill of rights introduced. I believe it was last year, um, and those eighteen bill of rights. I won't bore you with the details, but were four Four tenants away from getting that approved. And we feel confident that those final four tenant Bill of Rights will be approved um, one June.
2: Well, you mentioned Fort Hood, and that that kind of brings me to my next question. You know, Texas and really a lot of the South was really hit by those winter storms, kind of freak winter storms, not too long ago. And Fort Hood, I I know, bore a lot of that brunt. We had the Fort Hood garrison commander come on the show. Uh, soon after that. We talked a little bit about it, but how how did that storm kind of enterprise wide impact income operations?
6: Well, it impacted great. And we, and we named the storm as we name all weather events. And this is URI. So I had the opportunity to go testify in front of Congress about, uh, three or four weeks ago um, about winter storm URI and the impacts across our portfolio. So Fort Hood, um, Fort Riley, Fort Sill and Fort Polk um, were hit very hard. Um, Right after the storm, we stood up a emergency operations cell here at my headquarters. And for about three weeks straight at 1630, we talked about bud damages, um, how to search contractors, um, and fix, uh, and fix, you know, repairs, et cetera. And we still are, but we're, we're well on our way to, to getting it settled. Um, so as you know, we paid an extremely high power bill in several locations. So it was, um, it was, uh, you know, I, I sent some say a decade storm. I, I think it was a century storm, me, uh, us being in San Antonio, we, we saw it firsthand. But I got to tell you, the, the human dimension and the reaction um, and the dedication by our garrison command teams and our RCI partners at these installations uh, really came through. Um, extraordinary job folks working 24, 48, 72 hours straight. Um, fixing pipes, um, HVAC units, uh, motor poles. I can go on and on, um, but, but incredible effort. So we learned a lot from the storm. Um, that was part of my part of my testimony. And going forward, um, we need to be a little bit more resilient in some areas, and, and we're working on that.
2: Speaking of that testimony, uh, we had Congresswoman Luria uh, on the show right after that testimony. And part of what you talked about was, was this climate change and and really the increasing impact of that uh, on the military services. You know, as, as you look towards this uh, this next hurricane season and you look at kind of the increasing impact of climate change, uh, what are you most concerned about uh, enterprise wide? Are there best practices out there that you're putting in place uh, as we speak?
6: Yeah, Matt, good question. And there are um, each, Installation has what we call an energy and water plan, um, and that's actually nested with outside the fence line because that's important, right? Because a lot of the power comes from outside the fence line, um, et cetera. So uh, the, these plans um, are being—I I don't want to say more emphasis is on them. Um, what we found this storm really bad term, but awakened us in in some of these areas. Uh, the good news is we have center several energy. Um, saving performance contracts, um, actually over 100 within Installation Management Command. That's across spread all across the the uh, installations that we're responsible for. Um, we also there's there's a um, energy strategic plan put out by the Army. It really focuses on three things that are really important. Um, that's efficiency, resiliency, and affordability. So as we build new. Right. As we build new in in our military construction and our restoration and modernization projects, we need to build resiliency into those. And we understand that. So moving forward um, and we we have been doing that, um, obviously, but. The we have things now such as a climate assessment tool uh, that all the garrisons will use to assess climate changes in their region and what best to do. Um, So there's a lot of exciting things going on um, in the in the energy. I call it the energy resilience line of effort that we're doing. Um, but Winter Storm Yuri certainly, um, for better or for worse, helped us realize some, some vulnerabilities that we had. And, you know, and switching back probably to the topic that
2: is on everyone's mind these days is still COVID 19 uh, and the vaccine rollout. Uh, can you tell us about how your installations are involved in that, how they're cooperating with the communities if they are? And then maybe talk a little bit to the hesitancy we see across. Uh, the service and service members i think one of the latest reports i read was you know there are 40 percent of service members are hesitant to get the vaccine
6: yeah so covid 19 let me start a little bit i call it the road to war with covid 19 so if you start uh we don't like to remember but last february march as as this uh rolled out it started in europe italy korea um, in that region. And, you know, we have garrisons there, obviously, uh, the, the good news, we, we saw it coming and we prepared, um, a lot of folks don't realize that, but, you know, we, we were sharing TTPs, techniques, techniques, and procedures, um, and less, or, um, best lessons already happening that we shared, to our CONUS, United States-based installation. So that really helped. Um, Our health protection levels um, went from, obviously, Alpha to Charlie in some cases, which means more restrictive measures are put in on all the federal installations. Um, today, Today, we're at about 60, two installations at health protection level bravo um, and still got about 10 or 12 at um, health protection level charlie but things are trending in the right direction obviously as the country opens up Um, so i'm really proud of how our installations handled covid what we did on post um, because we, you remember, everybody remember last summer um, when the army took a pause in a lot of areas, even though, you know, the enemy doesn't take a pause for COVID, we got to be ready to fight. But our installations, um, we really focused on, you know, security, first line um, responders, taking care of them. We never, we never closed our child daycare centers, for example. Um, so, all of our, our garrison folks really did a great job in fighting through this and with our RCI partners, by the way, um, because the work orders, although they let up because people didn't want folks in their houses, um, they kept on going, but we, we came up with virtual, um, problem solving in terms of, you know, modifying for, Hey, I can't be in your house, but, on the phone or on, on, on the computer, hey, do this, or we, we increase self-help. So suffice to say, the, the road to war ha- has been, we've learned a lot. we got a great lessons learned. Um, now the vaccine, to, to your point. Uh, sorry, a little long in getting to that. But I, I considered us in a defensive posture up until the vaccine in other words I, we call it dmh distance masks and hygiene we were practicing in the headquarters throughout installation management command now we have this thing called the vaccine and i considered that an offensive weapon um needles and arm so um, we we proceeded with that each installation with the with the medical community with the senior commanders um, execute not executed, but. Um, put out vaccines or executed the vaccination operations um, and each did it a little bit differently but we combined and we did it as fast as we could Um, so your point about you know, 30, 40% of, of, of the military, um, not wanting the vaccine. I think some of that is education. In my view, I've had the same issue with our workforce. Um, and it's okay. P- people need to make their own decisions. It's completely voluntary. Um, but I can tell you, um, You know, I I trust uh, General Gus Perna, who's in charge of the distribution. My wife is a first-line COVID-19 nurse. She's given the shot every day. Um, So um, I I believe the vaccination, you know, is the right way to go. And then herd immunity, we'll we'll see what happens. I know we're all – there's a lot of – hopefully fingers crossed, right? Although if you drive outside the gates here in Texas, things look pretty uh, pretty normal, one might say, especially with the traffic. Um, but uh, I, I think in 30 or, or maybe thirty to sixty days the you know the vaccine will be available to everybody. I think it is now frankly, um, but I think we'll be in a much better place. You know, sir,
2: when I was uh, a private in the Army, I don't remember being given a choice if I wanted a vaccine or
6: not. but uh no you're right so i i back in, in desert shield desert storm um i remember several needles going in but i in all different places and i don't remember what you know, the names of them were, um, I have a son entering the army right now. Um, and we have a lot, some of those conversations. So we'll, we'll, we'll see where that goes. Maybe after, um, the emergency use gets verified. Um, we, we may change, but I, I don't want to speak to that just cause I don't, um, it's senior level army decision.
2: Yeah, I guess this isn't quite, uh, on our list. So maybe if, if you want to move past this, we can edit this, but, you know, with this, there's a lot of concern about racial inequity um, and even extremism in the services. I know a lot of installations and commanders uh, of operational units have been hosting town halls and listening sessions. Is that something that IMCOM has been a part of and taking the lead on?
6: Yeah, so absolutely. So we, we won't tolerate extremism or racism in our ranks. And we, we've taken a very active part in that, whether that's briefing our workforce um, here in San Antonio for, or Fort Sam, and then across all the installations, um joined with the senior commanders. Um, so we've we, uh, taken a hard looks, probably not the term we, we, we need to inculcate this in our culture, which I think it is. Um, but we need to verify, um, and validate that this is not going to be, um, put up with. So I, you know, as, as a senior has been in this army almost 37 years. Um, I truly believe our leaders are doing the right things. It's a big army, as you know, lot my, you know, many, almost a million man or person army. And um, we, we just got to, uh, we got to do the right thing. We have a, we have something in MCOM installation management called this, the campaign, the service culture campaign, service culture campaign. And the goal, the objective is to increase um, or improve the culture within our organization built on dignity and respect. So if we treat everybody with dignity and respect and we adhere to the army values, um, that's what we strive to do. And we also have, as you know, um, we have a soldier's creed and we have a civilian creed. A lot of folks don't realize that. And if you read the civilian creed, um, it, it's very similar to the Army creed, which is based on Army values. So um, this is, a, you know, we, we try to we try to get better every day.
1: As always, we appreciate General Abrams' time, and we look forward to seeing him at our Installation Innovation Forum Conference in San Antonio in November. To close out today's episode, we're joined by a special group of community leaders. The Armed Forces Insurance Military Spouse of the Year program recognizes the important work that is accomplished by military spouses across the globe. Each year, the program selects a spouse from each branch of service to be the national representative. Joining me today uh, to help anchor this spot is Rosemary Williams, an advocate for military spouses.
7: Thanks so much, Sal. We're joined today by Spouse of the Year winners from the Army, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Air Force, and National Guard. Every year since 2012, I've got a chance to meet the Military Spouses of the Year, and they are dazzling, and this year is no different. Welcome all. Thank I'm glad that you all could join us today, and enough about me. Let's get started. Paulette, I've got a great question for you, and you know, one of the things that we talk about uh, among, the, uh, among the services is moms. Right, being a military mom has remarkable challenges, uh, and this year has been really significant. Uh, so it's not just PCS moves and um, the isolation from living off the base, but now we have COVID too. So tell me a little bit about your support for
8: moms and sure. those challenges. Sure. So I'm a mentor mom with the Mothers of Preschooler International Program. We have a military division, and so um, I work with young moms. Uh, currently, we're at Scott Air Force Base, and I'm a mentor there. Um, we work at at helping make sure that those moms are getting plugged into their community, they have a support system and a network. You know, when we get transferred to these locations, we don't have our mom around, we don't have our aunties around. So um, we try to work to provide that extra support and mentorship to our um, young spouses to help build up that new generation of military families that can be strong and supported. And, um, you know, the pandemic has offered some challenges, but we're still able to meet sometimes virtually, sometimes outside in person, but it's been um, just wonderful to be able to continue to support those young moms. And if if anyone's out there that's interested in checking out, if there's a military MOPS next to you where you are, check out MOPS.org and you can get more information how you can get plugged in and get some support there. You
7: heard it here, folks, MOPS. And let me ask you one question. 30 years as a military spouse, you've seen a lot of changes. Is that about right? Yes.
8: In motherhood. Uh, yes. yes, our kids are all in college now, um, you know, but it's afforded me the opportunity to really give back to the younger generation. And I just believe in it. I believe in helping to support and strengthen military families. And groups like MOPS, um, they provide expanding your network, they provide relationships. And all of those things can lead to networking for a new job, networking for childcare if you need it, and just. Um, We didn't have military mops when I was younger, so I'm very grateful for programs like that now that help support our families. Wonderful.
1: Gosh, well, let me also add my thanks for you guys coming to be here in studio. I mean, this is no minor effort. I'm gonna test my memory here. (laughs) So in from North Dakota, right? Hawaii, Mississippi, Colorado, and Scott, Illinois. Yes. Yeah. So uh, from all around the country. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Round of applause.
9: Impressive. Oh, I thought I, I thought
1: you were clapping for where they came from. Oh, for my memory. That was oh, okay. Amazing. I'll, I'll take I'll take that as well. So um, we just talked a little bit about COVID and kind of what that did. It was kind of a shutdown year. We lost a lot of our connectivity. That importance of being together and being able to do things and things like that. Yet the the military spouses out there have come up with some just brilliant ways to remain connected and to give back and to help with their volunteerism. Um, I've got the right here, Operation Deploy Your Dress. I don't know anything about that, but tell me uh, a little bit about that, please.
10: Operation to Play Your Dress was started by five Army spouses back in 2015 in Fort Bliss, Texas, and we wanted to find a way to help get military spouses to military balls. It can be expensive sometimes, and so we thought if we could take a part of that expense away, then they would be able to get there. They'd be able to make connections and build a community around them, and so we offer them free formal attire to go to these military balls, and the dresses are donated from all over the country. um, Some brand new, some Some are somebody that's used it one time, they're never gonna use it again. And so they donate them to our shops. We have 10 shops. Now around the world because we've just um, opened one in Germany, okay. and so during COVID there weren't really balls going yeah. on. So you would think that would kind of kill Operation yeah. to Play Your Dress, but what our volunteers did behind the scenes is work to open new shops so that whenever our lives became more COVID stable, we were able to have the balls again. And so now we are getting to that point that balls are happening and people can come in and get free attire and go and start making those connections again so that they can get plugged back into their community. That is fantastic. That is what so a, cool. What a great Idea. It's a great idea. May I just ask a quick question.
7: If you were to tell folks uh, how to donate a dress, because I'm sure you're always looking for new dresses,
10: aren't we all ladies? Absolutely. Uh, well, not just ladies. You- <laughs>
1: Don't leave me out of this.
10: All right. Sounds looking for a new dress, right. too. I'm, um, I'm. Uh, where would they go? OperationDeployYourDress.org. Um, you can go. We have all of our locations listed there. And also, if you're at an installation and you're interested in getting an Operation to Play Your Dress there, you can also contact us through that through that website as well. Terrific. Wonderful. Christy, um, this year has been remarkable for the National Guard,
7: forefront of the pandemic, forefront of civil unrest. Uh, We've seen the National Guard in a way we haven't seen before, at least not for a generation or two. So tell me a little bit of how it's impacted um,
9: the Guard families and how they're faring. So you know, you can see on on the news that it's been very busy for our Guard families, but it's not like that for all of the Guard families. But then there are others who have been hit pretty hard, like just not even just the COVID stuff. It's been hurricane, um, just a bunch of stuff going on. But I kind of want to focus on the fact that, you know, with all the negativity in the media right now towards our National Guard, you know, you just see so many terrible things. Um, The one good thing about it is a lot of our service members, you know, they are civilians. They have civilian jobs. And many were laid off. And I believe that during this pandemic, it gave them an opportunity to go serve their country and also provide for their family.
7: You know, the law is to protect the guardsmen. And it not all employers behave well in that realm, right? So when, right the guard is constantly redefining resilience. Exactly. Uh, Have you seen among the guard families um, um, an uptick in sort of a struggle
9: around resources because they tend to be geo-dispersed despite this remarkable resilience? Well, not around us, but I mean, I do mentor for MSAN and there are a lot of questions, but I think within the guard families, guard spouses, they don't even know what resources they need. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to answer that question because no. we just don't know. Well, there, that's one of the problems right there.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't even know what they need. And right. there's so many resources mm-hmm. out there. And I know groups like yours are doing a fabulous job of connecting resources to needs. And uh, there's just so much that's out there. There's so many people who want to help and do well. And so it's great to have a segment like this where you can you know, share that kind of information. Where Absolutely. Would you, where
7: would you send, on that note, thanks, yep. on that note, where would you send guard families for assistance?
9: I know this Military OneSource Source of DOD. That is the big one. That's, that's, big that's one. usually the one we we refer to. But. Anything else you'd recommend? Now I always say, because I do mentor for MSAN. It's a great um, organization. That is just like everything is right there at your fingertips. So I always like to say if you're a new military spouse, even if you are a seasoned spouse and you just want to be connected, you don't have to volunteer. Yes. Go to MSAN, the Military Spouse Advocacy Network and just join our new hub that we have. It's amazing. And any kind of question you have, there is somebody that's going to answer it. It's like the number one resource. Yeah.
1: That's great.
7: That's a great plug.
1: (laughs) Arlene, you, uh, as we were chatting earlier, in addition to the volunteerism, which you all have huge roles in, kind of health and wellness as a a platform of yours, I think you're very interested. In fact, you shared with me that you ran the uh, Marine Corps Marathon just last year, right? Yes. I bet you did better than I did if you were watching the (laughs) opening segment of the show. Um, So uh, with that in mind, uh, what advice do you have for uh, some of our military spouses as they are maybe new to communities and things like that, to be able to find life like-minded people, like-minded groups to get involved in uh, for for
5: wellness? Well, it's really important to plug into your community, um, not just your military community, but also the community that you live in. And it's really important to be open-minded. You know, you meet somebody, introduce yourself. Don't shy away. You know, it's okay to go ahead and step outside of your comfort zone. Find out what groups are in your area, even if it's something like a running club and you're not a runner. You know, it's okay to take that chance and go, because you never know the connections that you're going to make when you meet that particular group. And it can have such a positive impact on you and your family, which in turn helps your service member because happy spouse, happy house. So it's really, really important. Like yeah, yeah, it's the new one. It's the new one. I just ate it myself. Yeah. 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 Well, it's important to make those connections, and you know, often your service members. Gone for an extended period of time. So, when you have a village around you that's very supportive and motivating and encouraging, it
7: really makes a world of difference. I'm yeah. so, oh, sorry. No, so I'm very curious. 72% of military families live outside the installation gates. Right. Mm-hmm. So, what are you seeing really works? Like, what is the number one connection if you were to just take a, a stab at it?
5: I would say volunteering. There are a lot of organizations that run solely on volunteers, whether they're affiliated with the military or or just with your community. So they can't function and thrive unless they have those people in the community stepping up. And that's a great way to make those other relationships and form those other bonds and be introduced to other organizations that then you can, in turn, share with others. And you know,
7: volunteerism is a great resume bullet because a military spouse employment exactly. is a significant that's issue. Right. It hovers around just 26% year over year for yeah, the dup- last 10, double,
1: double years. triple, quadruple the national average. Exactly sure. right.
7: Thanks, Sal. And um, yeah. honestly, the um, volunteerism on a resume really really works.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, having spent 24 years in the military myself, um, I can tell you now what nine years in the private sector, there's a lot of things the military does much better than the private sector. One of them is the way we embrace uh, new arrivals, the whole newcomers program that exists at a lot of installations, the sponsor program, mm-hmm. where people are reaching out to you before you even get from, you know, from base X to base Y. And you just don't see that kind of stuff on on what I call the outside. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about pros and cons all the time of one lifestyle versus another. But I'll tell you, having lived in both, um, the way we embrace each mm-hmm. other, we meeting back when I was in uniform, is the way it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. So, exactly. yeah, that's fantastic. Oh, great. I'm going to put you on the spot. What was your marathon time?
5: <laughs> um, I- uh, my time for last year, I honestly don't remember. Oh, okay. It's right. well, well, um, a sign that better than mine. I just had a though. great time.
7: Well, <laughs>
1: no what you said, mine was going to be faster.
7: So regardless
1: of it was true or not, you least, not that kind I, of guy. I, I, I'm just letting you know that in advance. So anyway, all right. I'm sorry.
7: Uh, Brie, a pandemic has had such an impact on families around the world. Uh, military families are not spared from that. Despite the remarkable support programs that are out there. Still, there are deployments and still there are PCSs to places where, you know, no one in isolation outside the gates and um, exceptional families and all that. Tell me a little bit about your initiative, Military Marriage Day, and how that helps our fabulous military families. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The pandemic took a toll on relationships.
11: If your marriage fared well prior to the pandemic, that time together in quarantine probably brought you closer, but there were still marriages who weren't as stable in the pandemic, really shook them, um, and, and they may be on the verge of separating. One of the things I find that's interesting are the divorce rates currently are low, but artificially low even, because they there may be some economic impact and other reasons why people aren't separating. Military Marriage Day, the initiative was put into place to celebrate marriage amongst our armed forces and giving us the opportunity to focus in on our relationships so that they can be strengthened and thrive. I personally believe if marriages are strong, our families are stronger, our community is stronger, and therefore the armed forces is stronger. So that's what Military Marriage Day is all about. We'll be celebrating this year, August the 14th. So everybody come out, celebrate with us virtually Uh, yet again. Hopefully we'll do some in-person, but August the 14th and the week of celebration. And you can get more information at militarymarriageday.com.
1: I'm going to ask right now, what are some of the things that's going to be involved in that program? I'm really interested. I'm trying to get ahead of the curve here. Yeah, get ahead of the curve. I'm going to look like I'm actually pretty involved. You
7: have an argument with your spouse. Is that the plan? (laughs) That that doesn't
1: sound like a great marriage day.
7: (laughs) That's what I'm picturing.
1: (laughs) Let's let let Bria, so she might know a little
11: bit about the program. So, military marriage day, the week of celebration, we have some amazing sponsors who will be offering giveaways to our couples. These will be um, different gifts, maybe some some. time to get away maybe from from your children i don't want to spoil too much since you're you're getting the it's just us though so you'll you'll uh, get and, and then
1: it's it's several hundred just people us. That
11: are also it's watching, just us don't worry though. about that yes giveaways yeah. will have an in-depth uh summit which is a, which will be a two-day Woo. summit to where you can really get the tools to put in your tool bag to use in your marriage whether in regard to um communicating Or how do you deal in a a deployment? So, so much will be going into that weekend. It's going to be fun. It's going to be focused on marriages. And we can't wait for each of our military members to participate. And where
7: do people get more information?
11: Yes, militarymarriageday.com. You can find all the information there on Facebook and Instagram, Military Marriage Day.
7: Wow. And is it volunteer-based? Mostly. It is volunteer
11: based. We, like I mentioned, we have some amazing spouses who will be volunteering. We are partnering with different organizations to also be mission partners, trying a grassroots style to really get the, the word out because it is the armed forces. Um, newest holiday celebrated August 14th. And I know we talked earlier. People normally remember your spouse's birthday. You remember anniversaries. We're celebrating military spouse appreciation. Hey guys, Mother's Day is coming out. I got to add a fifth one on there. Military marriage day. <laughs>
1: That's wonderful. I'm usually happy if I get 50% of those. So <laughs> I,
11: I, I very much appreciate it.
1: Ladies, uh, you know, from the bottom of my heart, thank you guys so very much. Um, I, I, I had the blessings of being in the military, as I said, for the better part of a quarter century. And I was an installation commander to finish my uh, career. And I always used to say at every single event when I'd welcome folks is you recruit the member, but you retain the family. Mm-hmm. And it's not unique. I'm not the one who came up with that. You've heard it a million times. But that is so, so true. Mm-hmm. And when you look at all the statistics and all the surveys and everything else. You guys are the absolute backbone of what we do. So thank you uh, very thank you. much.
7: And thank you for your pure leadership too. So all the spouses that are watching and they get to know you through Military Spouse Magazine and other activities. Um, you really set an example and it's so important that especially the younger spouses see you um, and so they can emulate and lead as well.
1: Okay. Well, from our studio here in Washington, D.C., uh, thanks for watching. we uh, Appreciate it so much. ADC Live, this uh, ends our session. We've got one more coming up in a few more weeks. Thanks, all.